So what is the statistical probability that blind random chance produced one enzyme? That it just happened by evolutionary chance. Um, there was a professor uh, uh, of applied mathematics at the University of Cardiff in Wales. His name is Chandra Rixramazinga. Uh, he's not a Christian. Uh, but he uh, crunched the numbers and said the probability that a blind random chance would form one enzyme in, in its complexity is 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. Now, you might be, it's early in the morning, I know. But I, at least I'm not throwing grammar at you. Uh, it's mathematics. Uh, what, what does that figure mean? It means it did not happen by chance. Because here's what the professor says, who's not a Christian, about that figure. Quote, he says the translation of that figure is that it would require more attempts for the formation of one enzyme than there are atoms in all of the stars and all of the galaxies in all of the entire known universe. Why am I a Christian? Because I understand that that great complexity, that one little enzyme, mathematically tells you, well, somebody greater than that made that. That had to be God. Uh, so I'm going with God, not blind random chance. Because uh, God's fingerprints are all over the cosmos if you pay attention. That's why I read, like, like reading books on mathematics like I, or I like reading books on science, uh, astronomy. Because I look at it and, and I see the handprint of God in all of that. And so God speaks clearly through the cosmos. It's called the cosmological argument if you want to study it. Um, that uh, above your head is enough evidence to come to know God. And Paul talks about this in Romans 1 as well. Um, but when you look at God and how he communicates, he also communicates not just through mathematical probabilities, he also communicates through prophecy. Because again, those prophetic utterances are so precise, they're related to statistics. Because how could these things be prophesied with precision unless God gave you the, the information ahead of time? And so from what we studied last week of the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, God had uh, told the, the serpent, uh, the devil, uh, that there was going to be a, a continual uh, battle against light and darkness, good and evil, uh, and that it will, would culminate with the devil afflicting uh, a heel wound on the coming seed or the Messiah, but that in due time the Messiah would uh, bring a head blow against the devil and totally eliminate him. That was the prophecy uh, in the Garden of Eden, that God was going to bring redemption and, and a kingdom and, and uh and, and deal with this problem of sin that in, entered in through the, the temptation of Eve and the fall of mankind. Um, but that was just the first prophecy, Genesis 3, 14, and 15. Uh, as I told you, uh, the lights that we have all up here represent uh, God pr progressively giving revelatory light to help you understand his plan. And so when you read past Genesis chapter 3, you have to ask the question, what did God do to fulfill the promise that he gave to sin the seed? Uh, and again, we could spend years going through all of these. So I'm going to jump um, from uh, chapter 3 to chapter 49 by summarizing what happened in between then. So God uh, developed the seed uh, uh, that the Messiah would come through uh, by uh, giving uh, Adam and Eve uh, a son uh, that would bring forth the seed. So uh, Adam was killed by his brother Cain, so the seed couldn't come through him. So God gave uh, his mother in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, gave her another son. His name was Seth. Uh, and through the line of Seth would come the, the Messiah. Uh, God then worked through Noah. Uh, Noah had sons, and it was through the son Shem that God would bring the Messiah. I have in my uh, office a, a giant chart that tra traces the entire genealogy uh, of the Messiah th uh, through all of these lines. It's a really cool chart. I've used it many, many times. Um, that's in Genesis chapter 12. God then says, I'm going to bring the Messiah through a group of people. 
a specific group of people, the Jewish people. And Abraham's going to be their forefather. I'm going to call him uh, from Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm going to move him from there, which is uh, like in uh, modern-day Iraq, and I'm going to bring him to Israel, and from him I'm going to make a mighty nation. That would be the Jewish nation. And through that, uh, he says in Genesis 12, he's going to bless the world through that nation. Uh, and then Abraham had sons. Uh, he had uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and then God says, I'm going to bring the seed, not through Ishmael, I'm going to bring him through Isaac. Uh, that, that would be the promised seed line. Uh, and, and then you have uh, Abraham, he had other sons, uh, Isaac and, uh, and Ishmael, they then in turn had sons. But God's going to bring the line uh, through um, Jacob, and Jacob's going to have sons. And the promise is going to come through Jacob, not through Esau. So God's very selective on what he's doing. All throughout Genesis history, he's remembering what he promised. So when you get to Genesis chapter 49, see how fast we can cover all those Bible chapters? Uh, when you get to Genesis chapter 49, God's still bringing the seed through now a special nation, but now a tribe within the nation. So Jacob uh, is giving his deathbed blessing, prophetic blessing to his 12 sons. The 12 sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel eventually. But at this point, there's no nation in Genesis chapter 49. When he gets to chapter 49, verses 8 to 12, he stops and he gives an amazing prophecy to the tribe of Judah. Uh, because it be through the tribe of Judah that the prophetic details of Genesis 3, 14, and 15 are going to be fulfilled because through the nation of Israel will come the Messiah. Through the tribe of Judah, with inside the nation of Israel, will come the Messianic seed who will eventually come through the Davidic line within the tribe of Judah. God is very specific in working on his plan. I would just say as a sidelight to you, as you see God working these things with great complexity, you think anything's going to derail him from fulfilling, from fulfilling his plan? I think not. Uh, and so when we look at this, uh, there's, a, there's an article I had to read uh, years ago uh, of a professor that I took when I was at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Eugene Merrill is his name, and he wrote an article for Bibliotheca Sacra, the, the school's uh, scholarly uh, periodical. He wrote an article uh, titled Fixed Dates and Patriarchal uh, Chronology. Exhilarating reading. Um, Exhilarating because of what Professor Merrill uh, shows in there. Uh, he shows how uh, Jacob died around 876, um, or he died in, uh, let me see, let me read my notes. Um, 1876 BC is when Jacob died. The messianic line is not going to come to a fruition through the line of Judah until the time of David. David was 1011 BC. So here's what's exciting about reading a chronolog chronological article like that with all these, these data points. It was 876 years before God brought the fruition of that together, began to tie them. You think God moves quickly? Think again. He's moving slowly and surely. I'm going to bring the seed. He's going to come through Shem. He's going to, he's, you know, he's going to come through Abraham. Then he's going to come through uh, Judah. Uh, and then, he, no, he's, then he's going to come through David. And he's doing all of that. So in 5 BC, when Jesus was born, he met all the criteria that had been, all the groundwork that had been laid concerning him. All of the 60 exact prophecies, he fulfilled every single one of them. So how could you become a Christian? By blindly believing Jesus was the Messiah? Oh, no. Just consider the prophetic evidence of what it says with great specificity. So we are going to look at Genesis chapter 49, 8 to 12, uh, which is an amazing 3,000-year-old prophecy, which is going to tell us a lot about Jesus. What, is it, what does it tell us about him specifically? Uh, it's going to tell us, uh, by main idea-wise, that the Messiah is going to be the leader of all leaders that have ever been born. He's going to be the quintessential leader. So in Genesis chapter 49, uh, Jacob is dying. In fact, after he gives this blessing, he breathes his last and enters into glory. Uh, he's blessing each son like in chronological order. So he starts with his firstborn, Reuben. 
But his first three sons get a negative blessing from their father. So whatever the father is going to say will be prophetically fulfilled by those sons. So Reuben uh, doesn't get a positive uh, word from his father uh, because Reuben had committed incest. And, and don't tell me that sin is not costly. Uh, when it came down to blessing the firstborn, instead of getting the double portion, he didn't get a portion that he wanted. But, but God uh, brings him not a blessing, but uh, like a curse and related to the sin that he had committed. The next two sons, uh, Simeon and Levi in verses 5 to 7, they didn't receive a positive word from their father either in a prophetic way um, because they were known for, uh, well, they had uh, anger management issues. Uh, and they were known for being extremely cruel and brutal to people. Again, their sin cost them. So don't be duped by the devil telling you your sin can be compartmentalized over here and it doesn't affect your life. God knows that your sin impacts your life. What these young men had done when they were younger, now that they're older, comes back to haunt them later. But when you get to chapter uh, 49, verse 8, things go in the positive direction as uh, the father Jacob looks at Judah. Now, what I would like to say is there is no way, if you, you have teenagers right now, do you know what they're going to do with their life by the end of the week? <laughs> Good luck on that one, right? There is no way. You, you do not know. I, I pastored my mom and dad at my last church for 19 years. Uh, and my dad told me, after doing that for 19 years, he said, son, I learned more about the things that you did we had no idea of. Because <laughs> I was like, yeah, I didn't tell you everything I did. Because there's no way your parents know what you're doing or are going to do. So just think about the mathematical probability, you know, that... Uh, like an enzyme forming by itself, you know, one in 10 to the 40,000th power. There is no way that Jacob could have known which of those 12 sons is going to do what he said unless God told him. So he's going to pick the tribe of Judah and he's going to tell him uh, this tribe is going to be the premier tribe. The only way he could have known this information is God, who's outside of time and space, told him what was going to happen. Uh, so Genesis chapter 3, verses 14, 15 promises the seed. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 17, if you want to read it, verses 6 and 11, uh, it, it talks about that to Abraham is hearing from God, that through Abraham will not only come this great nation, but eventually there's going to be regal rulers over that nation. Well, Israel's always looking for, well, how's that going to happen? How's God going to do that? When you get to chapter 36, which is uh, right before chapters uh, 37 to 50, which closes out the patriarchal narrative, there's an interesting little data point in there. That if you were reading, you're thinking, I'm like, why is that in there? Uh, in chapter 36, verses 31 to 43, uh, Moses writes about the Edomites and talks about how they had a king. Edomites are descendants of who? It's Bible Trivia 101. E Esau whose brother is Jacob. And Jacob is through whom the Messianic line is going to come through, but not through Esau. So if Esau is told and is shown in, in a, historically in chapter 36 as having kings, if you're of the Israelite nation, you're thinking to yourself, the seed's coming through our line. Where's our king? Where's our king? Well, when you get to chapter 49, verses 8 to 12, uh, God tells them about their king. So that's all introduction. Let's get into it. The Messiah is going to be the leader of leaders. Uh, three things that are going to be true about the Messianic leader. Number one, he's going to bring, bring complete dominance when he shows up. Verses 8 and following. So let's read it. It says, Judah, uh, of the tribe of Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down to you. 
I don't know if you had uh, siblings, but that's, that's quite a statement. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Let's think about this. So in the Hebrew text, if you go back to verse 8, uh, Judah, your brother, brothers shall praise you. Um, do you have brothers, sisters? Could you imagine if your dad on his deathbed looked at your brother and said, all the blessing will fall on you, and your other brothers are going to praise you, and they will kneel before you. How would your brothers feel about that? That would probably start a fight right there at dad's deathbed, right? Yeah, etc. So, I mean, the fact that he says this is just off the grid. Uh, and the way he says it in Hebrew, uh, because in Hebrew, when you read, you read from right to left, and all the, ver- the vowels are below the consonants, uh, it's really quite interesting. When you read from right to left, the very first word should be a verb. But it's not. It's, it's Yehuda. And then the next word is not a verb. It's, it is eta, which is the pronoun you. This is out of word order. So any brother listening to this is going, whoa, dad's speaking emphatically to Judah about what he's telling him. And what is he telling him? What did he say? He, he said that we're all going to praise him and bow down before him. You kidding me? Judah? That was, the, that was the prophecy. How would God, or how would Joseph or Jacob know that in history, down the halls of time, that the other sons who would become tribes, massive tribes within the nation of Israel, how would he know that that tribe would be the tribe that the others would see as preeminent? There's no way he could know this. But God told him. So what does he say? He says, your brothers shall praise you. So what does the word uh, Judah mean? Judah means to be praised. That's what the name means. Uh, Because when his mother Leah had him in Genesis 29, verse 35, she was so excited with his birth, she named him Judah, which in in Hebrew means uh, to be praised. So this is in Hebrew, a play on words. When he says, your name is Judah and your brothers will praise you, this is funny in Hebrew because he's saying, your name is to be praised. And oh, by the way, and and God was praised by your mother, but your brothers are going to praise you because of what God's going to do through you. That's what he's telling him. What exactly was he going to do? Well, he says, your, he's going to get specific. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Uh, I know in the text there, uh, it says, uh, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Uh, that verb, that, that copula, shall be, is not in the Hebrew text. It's supplied in the English text so you can read it. It's not there in Hebrew. Well, why is it not there? Uh, Moses, forget the verb. No, when you want to make something emphatic, like to your husband, just drop the verbs. Just leave the verbs out of the sentence. He'll get the point. She's speaking staccato. This, you ever do this? It totally gets his attention. This is what, they leave it out. So it's called ellipsis as a grammatical option. You leave it out to create an emphasis. So he says, let's talk about why, why they will praise you. Well, they're going to praise you because your hand is going to really be on the neck of your enemies. So if your hand is on the neck of your enemies, this is total domination, right? Because your, your enemy can't do anything to stop you if you got him by the neck. Total domination. Uh, so is it historically validated that, that in time, down the halls of Israel's time, this is even before they were a nation. They're just 12 brothers. There's not even a nation. He's saying, your enemies are going to be dominated by you. So is it true in history that the tribe of Judah was known as the tribe that was the, uh, well, I call them the, um, the Louis V. Chesty Pooler leader. Are you a Marine? Do Marines know who this is? Who is Chesty? He, won, he was awarded five Navy crosses uh, for valor in battle. That's, that's going to be David. 
David from the tribe of Judah, also from the line, his own line of David, the regal line, is going to be uh, 876 years later. He's going to fulfill what, what his forefather said about his tribe, that the other tribes would bow, bow before him because of his military prowess. That's what David was known for, being the ultimate warrior. So you see this in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Notice what it says as they, they recognize how powerful David is. In 2 Samuel 5, it says, Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. Uh, and the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be the ruler over Israel. So Saul was not a good king. That's what they're saying. But you are an awesome king. So, so all the elders came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed uh, King David, and the word anointed in Hebrew is the, is the concept of Messiah, to be anointed. He's like a precursor to the Messiah. They anointed uh, David king over Israel. What did they do? They recognized his military prowess, and they bowed before him. Why? Well, this, they recognized who he was as the king, a great warrior, defeated their enemies. He's a precursor to the Messiah, as we're going to see. Uh, he's, the, he's the ultimate warrior. So who was the first enemy that David took out in a spectacular way? Goliath. How'd he do it? Did he put on the armor and the sword? and everything? No, he, Saul tried to give him all that. I don't need that. I just need my slingshot. Huh? You're going to go out there with a slingshot? Yeah, yeah, I just need a, you know, a couple stones. Whenever I take people to Israel and we pull off the side of the road in the Valley of Elah, it's not a very big, not a very big valley. It's very, very small. Um, and we go, we go there and we park alongside the road and we start hiking down, you know, uh, to, the, to the river. And you stand there where, where they would have been because the two mountains where the Israelites are on this one mountain and the, and the Philistines are on this other mountain. And there's a river that cuts between them. It's still there. So I always take people down and everybody goes down and takes a rock out of the river. And, and you got to pray about that. And as a side note, I asked my tour guide the last time I was there, uh, right before COVID, I said, it seems over the 20-something years I've been here that there's many more rocks here than there were before. And they look like a different kind of rock because I'm a former landscaper. I pay attention to the rocks. These look different. And he laughed and he goes, yeah, the Israeli government knows that U.S. tourists constantly pick up rocks. <laughs> and so they bring rocks here. Isn't that funny? Back to my sermon. So Dave... So <laughs> So David took out Goliath, one stone. So David's going to become the great warrior of Israel who can take out Israel's enemies. But he doesn't stop there. If you go and study the, the line of David, uh, he, he, he defeats the Jebusites, who were the precursors uh, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Um, when it, before it was Jerusalem, uh, Jebusites. They had this mountain fortress, which became Jerusalem. I take people underground in Israel to the shaft that David and his men would have climbed up. And when you look down this shaft underground, this dark hole that goes straight down, it's a few feet across, it's slimy, it's wet. They climbed up this with weaponry. Everybody that looks down there asks one question. How in the world did they do that? How did they do that? Well, David was the ultimate warrior. Uh, he was the great king. Why was he that? Because it was prophesied that he would be that. It took 800 plus years for that to come about, but he becomes the great messianic type. So he had great ability. When you look at the tribe of Judah uh, as well, it was it preeminent? Uh, yes, it was. Because in the wilderness wanderings, when they camped around the tabernacle, they were all put together in a symmetrical format. And on the east side entrance of the, of the tabernacle, there were three tribes. The middle tribe was Judah. Don't you find this interesting? Right outside the entrance to the, the tabernacle, 
where the altar was for sacrifice, etc., was the tribe of Judah through which the Messiah will come. Uh, when they uh, went to war, when they were on the march, according to Numbers chapter 10, uh, this tribe always walked point. Uh, I remember uh, walking point is, is not a, probably a good thing if you're in the military, correct? Because if you're 